Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone. Glad that you have joined us today. Earlier this week, I was scrolling through social media in between six-hour blocks of prayer and fasting, okay, and I came across an article about cheetahs in zoos that was really fascinating to me, and, and what happens is, um, what I've noticed at least, is that human beings, we have this, this tendency to like to take big and dangerous things and try to tame and domesticate them. And so you, you have these zoos all over the world, and, and they have these cheetahs, and, and what they've noticed, or at least what they, what they would tell you, is that cheetahs are actually, perhaps surprisingly, a nervous, shy, kind of introverted, easily stressed out animal. Now, I would think the zoo should put an asterisk there, because they're in captivity, right? If you were locked in a cage and people were watching you, you might be a little more stressed out than normally in the, in the wild. Um, but what they found was, was you have these unintended consequences, right? When you take a wild, dangerous animal, you, you lock them up. And so these cheetahs get, get really stressed out, and then they get too stressed. They'll stop eating. They won't eat very well, and they'll stop breeding, and it, it just becomes a real big problem for the, the zoos. And so what they've discovered is that if you pair a puppy with a baby cheetah, not only do you get cute pictures for Instagram, but the playful, relaxed nature of the puppy can start to wear off on the cheetah. And in turn, the cheetah is able to, to grow up and have a, a friend in the enclosure and, and actually is able to, to breed and live successfully. Um, we, we have this, this need within us. I don't know what it is, whether we, we just like to prove that we can or whether it's because we want to educate or because we enjoy being entertained. But we, we like to, as, as humans, take big and dangerous and scary things and try to domesticate and tame them, try to make them pets. Many of you know I have a lifelong obsession with orcas, and and I'll never forget that the first time as a child at SeaWorld, I I saw this human being with just a whistle and a piece of fish command this apex predator to do silly tricks and to swim along with music. And and as a kid, right, there, there wasn't much... Beyond just that show, it later came out, though, that, right, what happens when you take big, dangerous, scary animals and you start to play with them and pretend that you can make them your pet is, is bad things can happen. And we've learned since there's, there's been such incidents and there's been, been deaths. You, you, it's difficult, it's dangerous at, at the least to take something that is capable of killing you and trying to play with it trying to domesticate it, trying to tame it. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of Christians do when it comes to sin. We, we think as long as we can tame it or domesticate it, or as long as we can hide it or keep it small, we can manage it. The scriptures, though, are going to tell us, and, and as we'll see this morning, that, that that's not the case. That's not wise advice for Christians, and that's certainly not the path that we should be walking on as followers of Jesus. If, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're in the middle of a sermon series, walking through the book of Colossians. We began chapter 3 last week. There's this very beautiful and profound section here, verses 1 through 17 in, in chapter 3 of Colossians. 
And we began by looking at the first few verses here, and, and we'll continue to move on. But I want to read the whole thing together just so we can keep it in context. Here's what it, what it says. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lives, from your lips. Do, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now you, therefore, let's, let's keep reading to, to verse 17. Therefore, as, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful that the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through the psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This, this very beautiful, profound passage here. It's always been one of my, my favorite sections of the book of Colossians. And it splits itself up pretty easily into three distinct sections. You, you have this introduction, which we went over last week, these first four verses, which is all about our identity in Christ, who we are as followers of Jesus. Despite how we may feel, despite the evidence around us, for those who have put their faith in Christ, for those who have been baptized the most real thing about you, the most true thing about you is your union with Jesus. And so we're told to put our attention, to focus, to set our minds and our hearts on the things above where Christ is. This isn't a call for some kind of spiritual dualism where, where the things below no longer matter. As you see, right, the rest of the, the passage goes on to talk about the transformed life. It's, it's setting our, our minds and our hearts on Christ, who, who reigns as the ascended one on the right hand of the Father, so that our lives below, here and now, might be different and transformed. And that's what, beginning in verse 5, Paul begins to talk about, the ethical shape of the lives of Jesus' followers, the rhythms and patterns, the behaviors, the actions and attitudes 
that should or shouldn't characterize those who claim to follow Christ, those who have been raised with Christ. So beginning in verse 5, we have kind of the negative aspect of this. And then in verse 12 through 17, we have the positive. We'll, we'll focus in this morning on, on verses 5 through 11. The key image, the key metaphor Paul's working with that, that, that brings the whole passage together, you find in, in verses 9 through 10, it's putting on and taking off. It's clothing language. He says, in Christ, because of, of your identity in Christ, because of the gift of salvation through Jesus that we have received, a transformation is and should be happening. And you could liken it to, to taking off an old wardrobe and putting on a new wardrobe, taking off some old clothes, putting on some new clothes. You've gone shopping in the Mall of Redemption, and, and there should be a different outfit on you for those who follow Jesus. It's likely Paul may be alluding to a, a very early Christian practice where, where when it's time for people to be baptized, normally on Easter Sunday, they would do so naked. Now, you might get nervous if I asked you to come up on stage and pray, or if you were getting baptized in front of a group of people, but just be thankful you were not around in the first few centuries, because you'd be up there as naked as the day you were born, all right? They would separate the males and the females. What would happen, though, is you would, you would actually take off your garments, representing your old life, and you'd get into the water. This would be a great time for a pastor to social distance a little bit. And you'd go down, and you'd come up, and you'd put on this white robe, symbolizing the righteousness and salvation you have now with your union and baptism and faith with the crucified and resurrected one. Metaphorically, that's, Paul is saying, what should be happening in our lives. We should be taking off these old clothes, these old ways of behaving and living, thinking and acting. We should be putting on these new ways of behaving and thinking, living and acting, both as individuals and as a community. And we get a very interesting command that I, I want to focus in on here this morning in, in verse 5. We get a call to violence. Paul tells us to put to death those things that are below. The command in Greek is literal here. It's murder. What should the Christian response be to sin, to evil, to the residual temptations and sin that, that we carry along even after we become Christians. According to Paul here in Colossians, the instinct should be a murderous one. It should not be to try to tame sin or domesticate it or make it into our pet or just push it to the side and, and hide it enough from other people. It should be to execute it, to strangle it to squeeze out every last bit of oxygen that it has. And, and Paul lists off kind of two groups of, of representative kind of evil, old life type of behavior, sexual immorality and some, some synonyms that kind of go along with it, impurity, lust, evil desires. And then he ends here with kind of a real broad in greed, which is idolatry. Colossians, as we've seen and will continue to see even here in these 17 verses, is full of Paul mentioning how thankful Christians should be. The Christian lifestyle is one that should be characterized by thankfulness. 
Well, greed is the exact opposite of thankfulness. Greed is saying, I want that. I don't have this. That person has that. I don't have it. I want it. It's hard to be greedy and thankful at the same time. And Paul says, this actually is the root of idolatry here, is that we're not finding our life and worth and our identity in God, but, but rather in stuff and things he has created. So sexual morality is mentioned for, for Paul, this word would have been kind of a catchphrase for, for sexual, sexual actions that, that went against the commandments of God. Adultery, cheating on your spouse, having sex with prostitutes, really probably for Paul any type of sexual activity that, that took place outside of this, this covenanted and vowed relationship of trust and, and faithfulness. And he says, this is, this is part of the old life. This is the clothing you should be taking off. Notice that there's an external aspect to these actions, but there's also an internal aspect. What I've found is that sometimes, at least for myself, I think for many others, it's easier to clean up the outside than the inside. It's easier for me to not have a affair, but to still feel lust. The second big group of kind of vices he lists out here kind of all center around anger and speech. Just put away also these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and, and filthy language from your lips. This, again, is part of the old life that we should be taking off and, and walking away from, putting to death. Again, there's this internal and external aspect here. One can be consumed with anger and, and smashing windows and, 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 and breaking down doors. Or one can be raging internally and seething, seeing red. One can be lying externally and to others or slandering and spreading false word, testimony. Or one can be doing it internally lying to themselves or believing things that are untrue. Paul says to kill these things. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I grew up with a Southern Baptist background. So when I hear words like the wrath of God, when I see that in Scripture, I think of a very angry, old, white-bearded man in heaven who is very upset that little Mike Skinner has discovered fun in the world. And so he's put some very arbitrary rules in place so that my smile doesn't get too big and I don't have quite as much fun as I could. And if I toe that line or go over it, hell, or an earthquake or tornado or, or whatever it might be. I don't know if that resonates with you, if that is kind of part of your background. In the scriptures, as I've come to learn and continue to read and study, the, the wrath of God and, and what results from sin, why we should be putting it to death, is because sin by nature is something that kills and steals and destroys. The laws of God aren't, aren't arbitrary laws. They're his directions, his pathway to a life of flourishing and joy and peace, to a life of fellowship with him. 
in his son and through his spirit. There's an individual element to it, and there's also a communal element to it. You see both in this passage. The reason that we have laws from God, the reason there are instructions about certain things to walk away from, are because these are the type of things that will blow you up as a person. These are the type of things that will blow up your community. If you want to flourish as a human being, if you want to live in a community that flourishes, then you're going to need to start to forgive. You're going to need to start to learn how to tell the truth. You're going to need to stop sleeping with each other's spouses. That's that's going to blow you up. That's going to hurt the relationship. That's going to ruin the community. God as creator is committed to life and to seeing what he's created live and flourish and abound. And so by nature, built into that commitment, that covenant faithfulness, it's a commitment against anything that would come and tear down and kill and destroy. And so the command that, that Paul gives us here is, is to kill. Kill whatever it is in our lives that draws us back to this old person, that draws us back to these old ways. Choke it off, give it no room, give it no oxygen. The Puritan theologian John Owen wrote a book about this topic, the mortification of sin in the, the 17th century. And, and one of his most famous quotes from that book is, is, he says, Christians have two options at all times. You're either killing sin or you're allowing it to kill you. The mistake that I think a lot of Christians make is, is we often think that we can tame sin. We can domesticate it. We can get a crate for it like my puppy at home. Or we can... We can put a door in front of it and hide it from other people, and we can just manage it. The issue here is that's not what sin does, and that's not how it will act for you or for the community that you belong to. There's a pastor in Dallas, Matt Chandler, and and I enjoy listening to him, and, and he recently preached through the book of Revelation. If you've been with us for a while, you know, about a year ago or so, a little bit over a year, I preached through the book of Revelation. And so it, it was hard for me to listen to because he's a very talented preacher. Normally I can listen to his sermons and just thank God for the gifts he's been given. Instead, this was kind of like a, this is not fair that, that one person can do this. You know, I can still remember prepping for that passage. And I'm like, I didn't think of that idea or that story or that turn of phrase. I mean, this is just not, this is not, this is not fair. And, and a few weeks into the series, he was talking about sin, and he, he said this about sin. He said, there's no such thing as a small sin. This is the big deception Christians give to themselves. There's no such thing as a small sin. He says, there's only a sin that's waiting to destroy you. There's only a sin that's crouching in the corner to master you, to blow you up, to blow up the community that you belong to. Again, between these six-hour blocks of prayer and fasting, sometimes I'll hit myself on the back. I was scrolling through social media. You know I'm, I'm interested in just weird science stuff, and I came across this article about a certain type of parasite that will sometimes come to take residence up in certain insects like crickets and grasshoppers. And it struck me as the, the perfect metaphor for what 
Paul is trying to get at here with this command to kill sin, not let it grow, not, not let it survive at all. This parasite will, will go into a, a cricket or a grasshopper, and, and what it will do is it will kind of grow and live quietly in the background, but in ways scientists don't fully understand, it starts to kind of control the mind of the insect. It secretes some neurotransmitters, and it starts to make the insect behave in ways it wouldn't otherwise behave, eventually leading to death so that the parasite can live and thrive. It's actually an aquatic worm. It needs to go into water to live. And grasshoppers and crickets, normally without this parasite, if you put them next to standing water, they will flee. They know this is not the place for us. We're not swimmers. But if you put a grasshopper or a cricket with this parasite next to water, do you know what they do? They cannonball. They dive bomb into it. They commit suicide. Their parasite's taken over. And you can watch this. There's videos of it. Congratulations, I just gave you a YouTube assignment. (laughs) In goes the cricket into the water, and the cricket dies, and the worm swims out. This is what sin does. We often think we can tame it or domesticate it or, or, or just hide it. In reality, though, sin is, is nothing to, to play with. It's something that, that ultimately, in ways perhaps we could never imagine or anticipate, will hurt and kill and destroy. And so this is why it's, it's not just legalism. It's not just fear. It's, it's almost good news that we're given these instructions and this command. Paul says, just kill it. Murder it. Get rid of it. Don't, don't play with it. Don't make it your pet. Don't pretend that you can tame this or control this. You can't. And so there's what theologians call this, this grace-driven effort that we're called to. You see, you and I don't have the willpower within ourselves just to stop sinning. It's all grace. It's all a gift from God. It all comes from our union with Christ, our identity as those who have died and been raised with Christ, and yet it still involves some effort on our part. It still involves us to develop this this murderous instinct. So how might we go about killing the sin in our life? I want to suggest just a couple of ways we might do that. Some spiritual disciplines that have have proven beneficial throughout time for Christians cross-culturally for thousands of years. Time spent in the scripture and time spent in prayer are pretty potent weapons for rooting out and killing sin in our lives. Maybe we, we put that under the rubric of, of just worship in general, investing in and growing in our, our relationship with God, spending time in his presence, allowing the spirit space to speak to us developing the skills to hear and discern the Spirit's prompting in our lives so that we might notice where there's anger or slander, or we might notice where there's lust or, or passion or greed or idolatry. This is the potent weapon in our, our assassin's kit when it comes to killing sin. Another one, not as popular, but very potent, is confession. And accountability. Sin is often 
like mold. It grows best in the dark. And this vicious cycle happens where, where Christians are, are stuck in some kind of temptation and sin and, and they want to tame it and hide it. But, but actually what you do by hiding it is it, you're just giving it more power, more oxygen, more air. You're, you're creating the right environment for it to thrive and to one day eventually blow you up or blow your community up. And, and one of the, the, the quickest ways to take some power out of sin in your life is just to, to verbally tell somebody. If you've never done this before, maybe you don't know what this feels like. But there's some weird relief that happens when you bring something out into the light. And confession leads to accountability, which is it's not just someone shaming you or reminding you of your mistakes. It's someone fighting with you. It's bringing someone into your life, into your ring, and saying, hey, I've got 10 rounds with this sin. I need to kill it. Could you do some punches with me? Can you help me, can you help me root this out? And confession, accountability, these are very potent weapons that we should have in our toolkit when it comes to killing and putting away the residual effects of sin, the temptations of our, our old life. We'll also need, I think, some patience and endurance. It took us a long time to get to where we are today. Some of us maybe were born Christians, okay, came out of the womb and were at the altar and the baptism happened and it all happened right there. But, but many of us kind of had some life before and maybe had some, some ups and downs even on the Christian journey after we became Christians. And, and sometimes if it took you seven years to get into a sticky situation, it, it's not unreasonable to expect it might take you seven years to get out of that sticky situation. And you've, we've got to learn to have some grace with ourselves. We've got to learn, I think, to see our spiritual maturity through the lens of God the Father, who again, echoing this, this pastor in Dallas, talks about you know, kids taking their first steps kid who takes their first step, right? I mean, it's just a baby has a big head, so they start to fall forward, and, and, and you know, foot comes out, and they fall down. And what happens? Every, everyone in the room, it's like someone won the Olympics, right? Like Michael Phelps just showed up in infant form. They aren't like, what an idiot. I've been walking my entire life. Did you do this? Did you teach them that? No, they, they celebrate the progress. They don't hyper-focus on the fall. We say, we get back up. Next time it's two steps. Next time it's three steps. And soon we'll be, we'll be running and skipping and, and jumping. You've got to learn to give yourself some time. And perhaps equally important, you've got to learn to give other people some time. God has the privilege of time and patience. And he graciously gives that to us and often plays what I call the long game with us. Which means we don't have to be fixed overnight. We don't have to be transformed overnight. There are some things that we can kind of make a cold, clean break from, but there are other things that are a little stickier. There are some other ghosts that, that haunt us a little farther. But God has patience and grace with us, and we should extend that to other people as well. 
patience and endurance, this is a, a potent toolkit when it comes to killing and walking away from sin. The last one that I'll mention as we wrap up this morning is, is therapy. And if you're wondering when I'm going to stop talking about therapy from the stage, I'll tell you when. It's when people will stop coming to me and saying, I went to therapy and it saved my life. I went to therapy and it saved my marriage. I went to therapy and I was able to continue belonging to church. As long as I've got a microphone and the camera pointed at me, I'm going to point out that Christians have not always done the best job of being psychologically healthy. There are a lot of factors that play into this, but human beings are, are multifaceted individuals. We need more than just knowledge. And there's lots of ways that throughout life we get these scars on us and these wounds in us. And it becomes nearly impossible to untangle it on our own. And so even when it comes to the fight against sin, things get really confusing really fast. I'll give you just a personal example from my own life. I'm not a very angry person. I don't think most people would describe me as a very angry person. I rarely raise my voice. I don't hit things or throw things. There are times, though, that I I kind of rage inside and seethe. And it it surprises me sometimes. Sometimes I'm confused as to why it happens here and not there. There can be kind of this vengeance streak inside of me or this, this desire to hold a grudge against somebody. What I found out in therapy, though, is that that anger is almost never really anger. It's a displaced emotion. What, what, what's happened in my own life is I'm so uncomfortable with feelings of guilt or shame, with feeling bad about myself, that I instinctively and quickly and skillfully channel that feeling into anger. And I scapegoat somebody else, perhaps a family member, or I create this long-running feud inside of my head. I don't know if you've ever done this where you've got an arch enemy, but maybe they don't know about it, but inside your head there's a real big drama playing out. And it's only when I was able to, to recognize that, when I, when I came to realize that, with the help of a professional, that I was able to make progress in my spiritual maturity. You see, the anger in my life never really bubbled over externally, but there's a danger that if I hadn't addressed it, didn't know where it was coming from or why, one day maybe it would have. It would have blown me up or blown someone else around me up. Or there's this danger that it just creates an environment for bigger or more catastrophic sins. It just kind of poisons the well of my soul, makes it more difficult for me to live in this thankfulness and this joy and peace that we're called to live in. Or there's this danger that I I never actually get to the root of what's happening inside of my heart. I don't even know about it. My emotions have been so displaced. What happens now is is I feel this anger, and I go, okay, am I really angry? No, I just feel bad about myself. Maybe I feel guilty. Maybe I feel shame. And then I can work on that. I can go, okay, I feel guilty. Did I do something wrong? Sometimes the answer is yes. And I can go ask for forgiveness. 
I can make it right. I can, I can do something about it. Productive. Sometimes the answer is no. I didn't do anything wrong. But there's like a voice of a middle school bully or an offhanded comment from my parent that just has always bounced around in my mind. Causing these, these emotions. I think therapy can be a very potent weapon in our toolkit when it comes to killing sin. Of course, like everything, it's not perfect. Psychology, science, none of these things are, are perfect, and, and you can hit and miss, and you can certainly strike out. But what I've found in my own life and, and what I continue to see in people around me is that sometimes the messier issues that we get into often really need the, the help of a trained professional. That's really what pastoral care, I think, is at best. It's kind of armchair therapy. And sometimes that's all you need, but, but sometimes you may come talk to me and I'll say, hey, you should talk to someone who's better at this than I am. But scripture and prayer, time and worship, confession and accountability, patience, endurance, therapy, relationships with other people. These are, are all things that we can put into our toolbox as we seek to be obedient to the Scriptures, as we seek to put to death those things that belong to our old nature and our old life. Not because we're afraid. Not because God doesn't want us to enjoy life or to thrive but precisely because of the opposite, because we have been raised with Christ. So we do have this glorious future awaiting us, and, and we can, by God's grace, taste it and live it and embody it here and now in the present, both as individuals and as a community.